You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, Bruce Carlson here. I'm going to do something a little different because I was recording uh, part six of A Dozen Ronald Reagans, a series we've been working on this year, having a little bit of audio trouble with the regular equipment. There's just too much to talk about, though, and so if with excuses for the sound quality, I'm going on the headphone mic for this one to talk about a few things. going to continue the series, part six almost done, and part seven of A Dozen Ronald Reagan should follow much soon after. It's looking now like it's going to be a nine-part series. Part eight being about the Cold War, part nine being a conclusion. I was going to do a dozen for a dozen, but it just doesn't make sense. It'll be too many episodes, and we're going to have so much to talk about in an election year. Now, to this, so much to talk about. I mean, the first thing is Brexit. Uh, like most, I was surprised, but not so surprised. It did seem like there was a rising leave vote towards the end there. Um, on Thursday night, going into Friday morning, I was tweeting a bit. Find me on Twitter at, at myhist, M-Y-H-I-S-T. I noted on Twitter that there's a slight connection between towns that were pro-American in 1775-1776. We either had a Whiggish member of Parliament or where the people there were supportive of the American colonists and wanted them to be left alone. It's a little-known fact that during the American Revolution there there was plenty of support for the American cause within the country of Britain, and especially within England. I noted a slight connection between some of those towns and remain votes. The most obvious being London, the center of the population then and now. Now how do we know this? Because in the 1770s these are towns that actually submitted a petition to the king for better treatment of the American colonists. The petition was ignored, it went nowhere, but it does serve as a record as to which town there was heavy support for the American cause. And those towns, Bristol, Liverpool, London, Norwich, Newcastle, were among petition signers in 1775, and they're among the highest remain votes in Brexit. So just a little interesting thing that I noted. I mean, shades of Kevin Phillips and his excellent book, Cousin Ward, where he gets into Anglo-American populations and how the differences in the English Civil War carried over into the American Revolution and such. Other than that, I mean, I'm always cautious about making observations about what's going on across the pond, but I do it. I do. I've been watching Parliament for for quite some time. Um, So I got the question, who is the most likely prime minister 
after David Cameron leaves. Well, all signs appear to point towards Boris Johnson. David Cameron basically indicated that he's going to resign. There'll be a new prime minister. He's not going to go through with any of the procedures post the Brexit vote. He's not going to invoke Article 50 or do anything like that. He's going to wait for the next prime minister to do it. So who will be next? All the focus on Boris Johnson. Although I think we're right in the middle of the post-Brexit vote, and you have to assume that someone's going to challenge him, I would think. So there might be a kind of pro-Cameron or pro-Remain prime ministerial candidate in the Conservative Party. It's looking like if that's going to happen, it would be Theresa May, who's been the Home Secretary and a bit of an up-and-comer. So there's still considerable Remain support in the Conservative Party bench. The UK Parliament has a really interesting situation going on because the Parliament itself would easily vote overwhelmingly to stay in the European Union. But the British people have just decided to leave, 48 to 52%. The support would be much more lopsided in the opposite direction if we were the members of Parliament voting. The majority of the Conservative Party probably wants to remain. Then you have all the other parties, Labour, Liberal Democrats, SNP, uh, all of those folks would like to remain in the European Union. So it's possible you could get um, another candidate to run. Here's one of the reasons why, is for, for, for now that Cameron has kind of seeded the field, Boris Johnson steps in, he has to take all the unpopular actions and suffer the consequences if, say, Scotland leaves, if Northern Ireland sees protests and other trouble, if there's requests from the Catholic side of Northern Ireland, which voted overwhelmingly for EU membership, if there's requests there to leave, uh, or if there's just simply trouble. That all falls on this new beleaguered uh, prime minister. So you have this possibility that he might might be in his interest to wait and have somebody else take it. The problem for him, though, is if he doesn't take action now, uh, that might be the loss of the opportunity. So, you know, I would look out for somebody like a Theresa May to run against Boris Johnson. There's actually more pro-Euro support in the Conservative Party, so she could possibly win such an election. Uh, you know, being prime minister is the top of British politics. So even if it's something that you might only be able to do for a few months, I wouldn't discount the fact that somebody would want to run even in this very difficult time. Always fun to look at uh, another country's politics, right, and for a moment ignore the politics of one's own country. <laughs> Here's a question I got. Uh, do all signs currently point Hillary Clinton trouncing Trump in a landslide. Yes, well, aren't we fleeting in our observations of politics? Just a few weeks ago, it was like, well, Trump's even in the swing states, you know, and Hillary's having trouble. And now that uh, her nomination's locked up and Trump had a series of bad weeks, you know, the polls are, are going the other way. I would only caution, you have several events coming up. Conventions, the VP picks, debates, and that's not to mention any foreign policy events or domestic events 
that might occur in between now and November. But in terms of things directly in the candidate's control, you have how that convention's going to run, uh, who Trump will pick for his vice presidential candidate. Is he going to go with somebody that's kind of already in the Trump group, like, say, a Gingrich or a Christie? Or does he pick someone like a surprising choice, but maybe a useful one, somebody like Tim Scott, South Carolina, uh, African-American senator who has not ruled out, even though he supported Marco Rubio, has not ruled out supporting Trump uh, or running on the ticket. Um, interesting times, and uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, my point would be, if he gets something like that right, if the convention goes smoothly, you know, most of the time you get a small bounce off of that. And one thing that you don't want to be so early is a front runner. And if you are the front runner, and I'm kind of paraphrasing a Paul Begala with this one, don't be the front runner. You know, don't act like the front runner. Don't take it for granted. Because it's very, very early in the process. And then you still have a debates, which are always a good opportunity to turn things around and um and several other events during the election. So things are a little early. I don't know what it is about the Brexit vote that has people looking at Pennsylvania. Now, I guess I just made a comparison of towns who supported the American Revolution in the 1770s and those who voted uh, remain. So I guess others are now making a connection here that the Brexit vote indicating a greater countryside vote versus the kind of mathematical whiz kid Nate Silver type talk you know, emerging Democratic majority type talk that might be overcounting cities and the like. And so watch Pennsylvania. Trump and the ad campaign is certainly focused on Pennsylvania. And everybody's looking at this Cambria County, so it's it's interesting. that. Uh, but, it, but in my view, if you look at Pennsylvania, I believe that the Philly suburbs have been controlling that state's politics for some time. Now, if you have Bucks, Delaware, Chester, these are places that used to be favorable to the GOP back when it was, say, like George H.W. Bush or Ronald Reagan running. You also have places like Monroe and Pike, which have grown greatly in population just since 2000. And uh, I think, well, Cambria County that is outside of Pittsburgh that people are, are looking at has gone down. Um, Monroe and Pike have gone up. So... Pocono beats Pittsburgh, I guess, when you're looking at who's going to determine things. Uh, Monroe County, for instance, was 56% uh, voted for President Obama in 2012. So certainly anything can happen, but I just don't see as yet evidence that, uh, that there's this great, quiet Trump vote out there and um, you know using the Brexit as a reason to think so eh, it, it, it seems a bit silly so it's a little early for that uh, quick observations on a few topics and with that I'm gonna go to an episode that we did back in 2012 actually we recorded in 2008 and then 2012 so many new listeners now so I think it will be useful it's about why the parties have the schedule of conventions they do. How come the Republicans go first and the Democrats 
go last. What's the advantage? You know, some people would think maybe getting your message out first and setting the agenda for the campaign the other party has to respond to is the advantage. And others might think speaking last is always the way to go. You can cut into the other side's bounce. Probably the latter is what most political consultants like. So how did it become that one party decided that, uh, that the parties decided that they would stick to the schedule? And it's an interesting history, uh, fear of disadvantage on either side and brinksmanship and, and the like. So we're going to take a look at that. It is the schedule of conventions from 2008. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. It's unlikely that any modern politician would react the way that Horatio Seymour did when offered the Democratic nomination for president in 1868. Seymour, then the governor of New York, was the chair of the Democratic Party convention, a convention that was divided between some powerful forces, supporters of President Andrew Johnson, supporters of Congressman George Pendleton, Samuel Chase, and Scott Hancock. As ballots continued, none of these candidates could get the necessary votes. Horatio Seymour started showing up with a sizable amount of votes himself. Upon seeing this, the chairman of the convention issued a statement to the convention. I will not accept the nomination of this convention under any circumstances. A statement that it's almost impossible to imagine any Washington politician making today. Democrats in that year couldn't decide who should face General Ulysses S. Grant, the popular hero and likely Republican nominee. President Andrew Johnson had some Democratic supporters who liked the way he was handling Reconstruction and liked the way he was standing up to the radical Republicans in Congress. But he still had run against Democrats in 1864 on a ticket with Abraham Lincoln, whom many Democrats still didn't like much. Scott Hancock was a Union general, but had no political experience. Samuel Chase had been a Republican all of his adult political life and was now Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He was seeking the Democratic nomination merely because the Republicans didn't offer it to him. 
and that turned off many Democrats. The frontrunner was George Pendleton, the vice presidential candidate on the Democratic ticket of 1864 and a congressman from Ohio. He was a well-respected consensus builder, known as Gentleman George in the Congress. But he's also an advocate for silver money. That made Pendleton very popular among many Western Democrats. But the Easterners, the gold money Democrat, sought to stop him. With all of this battling going on, convention delegates weren't ready to give anybody two-thirds of the vote. And again, started, despite his instructions, voting for Horatio Seymour. As a new crop of votes appeared for him, Seymour then took the rostrum and made a statement. I must not be your candidate, he said. I must not be your candidate. It is inconceivable to imagine a Barack Obama, a Mitt Romney, approaching the podium of a convention that desperately wanted them and saying, I must not be your candidate. Yet that's what Horatio Seymour did. But the convention disobeyed his instructions, and a steamroller started. In the end, even his own opposition running could not stop Horatio Seymour from becoming the Democratic Party candidate in 1868. Once he received two-thirds of the vote, he was simply forced to accept the nomination, which he did. If he could not get the Democratic Party convention to refuse him the presidency, the general election voters took care of that, and Seymour was defeated in the general election outside his home state of New York and the South, losing to the hero general of the Union. The reluctant candidacy of Seymour was partially the result of a divided convention, but also the result of some interesting convention timing. The chairman and the key funder of the Democratic Party in the 1860s was August Belmont, a wealthy New Yorker whose name still survives in many New York things today. Belmont wanted to stop Pendleton, and especially his silver money plank. Although the convention was planned for April, Belmont used his powers to delay the party convention till support could be built for other candidates, such as Chase and Hancock, depriving Pendleton of the votes he would need to get a clear two-thirds majority. The Democratic Party convention that year was held in July, which was fairly late for the 19th century. It was not the first time that Belmont, as party chair, used the timing of a convention to try to help events along. Four years earlier, in 1864, as Democrats nominated George McClellan and Pendleton for vice president, Belmont held the Democratic convention in the end of August, hoping that the war would go badly, that there would be enough reverses for the Union Army that would embarrass Lincoln, who had snatched up his nomination already in June. August was late in the 19th century, extremely late. Most party conventions were held in April or May, or at least in June. And with good reason, traveling in those days was slow. One needed to get the name out, especially for a challenger. It took a while to get across America. While so many things are unpredictable about this election, the one thing that is not is this. Republicans will meet before the Democrats. But why is that? Is it tradition or some gentleman's handshake agreement? Indeed, it is the challenging party, the party that's not in the White House, that goes first. And the incumbent party, the party in the White House, that goes last. It does not change 
whether an incumbent president is running or not. And why is this? Well, no law makes it so. The law does not address national party conventions. The Constitution avoids mention of parties at all, so certainly doesn't mention conventions, which in any case were not in existence at the time of the Constitution. The timing of these conventions, it appears, is a mixture of tradition and gamesmanship. The first true convention was in 1832, but only Democrats and the small anti-Mason party had a convention. Martin Van Buren thought that a national convention, a getting together of all the state parties into one group, was a great way to anoint himself as vice president under Andrew Jackson and to have some momentum and to have some authority among Democrats going into 1836 when he wanted the presidency for himself. When that year rolled around, Andrew Jackson wanted to help his vice president Martin Van Buren, who had been quite loyal to him, to succeed him. And to help ensure that, Jackson saw that the convention would be held a year and a half before the election of 1836. The Whig Party, the opposition party, didn't hold a convention that year. But in 1840, Whigs held their convention before the Democrats. They held their convention first. And then the same in 1844, though they nominally held the White House. When 1848 came around, Democrats were in the White House. James Polk was president, yet they held their convention first. It was a very different situation than the understanding we have today. And this sort of topsy-turvy situation would occur until August Belmont's aforementioned strike against Congressman George Pendleton and the unwanted Seymour for President campaign and a late convention for Democrats. From 1864... Until the 20th century, Republicans would go first. Democrats would go last. And this didn't change when one party held the White House. Whether they were in the White House, as Republicans were from 1861 to 1885, they went first. When they were out of power, as they were between 1885 to 1889, or from 1913 to 1921... Republicans still had their convention first. During the 1920s, when Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover held the White House for Republicans, the GOP went first. Now, only a small amount of time, usually just a few weeks if at the most, separated the Republican and Democratic conventions. The movement to change this simple tradition seemed to occur in the 1930s, while Franklin Roosevelt was in the White House. The Republicans, per the tradition, met first, and the Democrats last during those years, but out of power for a few elections. In 1940, the Republicans reportedly made some grumblings that they would have their convention last, and seeking to reap the advantage of a little momentum and a short campaign. And to benefit from that momentum, they'd get coming out of the convention to Election Day. Franklin Roosevelt had beaten them in two elections, and perhaps they were willing to try anything. James Farley, the campaign manager for Roosevelt, Roosevelt's political manager, nominally in charge of the Democratic Party, apparently said that he would wait the Republicans out and have the convention as late as he needed to. This whole 
story is not very well documented. It is on the report of some aides. But in taking this action, Farley may have stood on a justification that the incumbent party goes last. We have the White House, so we have the privilege of going last. A justification that may have helped Farley and FDR win that election and the next one, but would lose the advantage of a late convention for the Democratic Party. And although we don't have documentation that he used that justification, somebody must have because of the way that Republicans acted in 1956 when things really came to a head. In this year, a couple of things happened. It was the first year in modern times that Republicans were in the White House. Republicans that normally would go first with their convention per the tradition were now the incumbents in the White House. And both parties had the same advantage. Their nominees were well-known. They didn't need a lot of time to get out there, to run on the campaign trail, to get their nominee's name out. Eisenhower was, of course, the famous general and was already president. And Adelaide Stevenson had run before in 1952 and was also well known. There was no need for a ramp up for a new person to get their name out there. So both parties wanted to have the advantage now of a late event, late convention. This is the media age. There were television cameras covering these events. A convention could bring important publicity to a campaign, and one wanted to ride that momentum to Election Day as fast as possible. Democrats tried to steal the thunder of the Republican incumbent party, announcing early in 1955 that they would hold their 1956 convention in Chicago on August the 27th. Very late. This was a trap. Because TV and radio equipment at the time, this is 1956, required a lot of work to move. It's very big equipment, a lot of expense to move. The conventions of 1940, 1944, 1948, and 1952, the Republican and Democratic conventions were held in the same city. That way the media could leave their equipment there. So now, by the Democrats announcing that they were holding their convention in Chicago and such a late date, August 27th, there was no way that unless Republicans wanted to go into September with their convention, which, by the way, they eventually did for the first time in 2004, the Democrats were going last. But in picking such a late date, Democrats, turned out, had erred because in several southern states, August 27th was too late to print ballots. And the Republican Party chairman outmaneuvered them by announcing, media be damned, Republicans were going to have their convention in a different city as Democrats. Democrats would be in Chicago, Republicans would be in San Francisco, August 20th. The stand of the grand old party, the Republicans, established this tradition that the incumbent party, the party in the White House, has the right to go last. Since then, whether it's sportsmanship, whether it's a kind of game theory, no one has messed with the rules. It has never at least been recorded that the Democrats and Republicans have met in a room to discuss their convention timing. But it does appear that a series of maneuvers and threatened maneuvers long ago seem to have ruined the appetite for a fight over this convention timing. Having the challenging party go first might have had some advantages, 
in the 19th and early 20th century when the challenging party needed to go around and get their name out. But in the days of radio, newsreel, and certainly TV, it only takes now a few hours to get the word out about a presidential nomination. There's an estimated six-point average gain that tickets from 1968 to 2000 got in the polls from their convention. Given that, a later convention, particularly when you're talking about now in recent years, 2004 and now 2008, you've had the Republican Party now reaching September with their convention, a later convention puts that boost in the poll a little bit later in the cycle. Doesn't mean the challenging candidate won't come back from it, and it doesn't mean it will enough to even get the incumbent uh, candidate ahead in the first place, but it's still a boost that's happening a little bit closer to November. These advantages in our modern-day politics seem unfair to a challenging party. Yet how could it be changed? It would take bold brinksmanship, a party willing to break the rules, including the now 52-year-old rule that the incumbent party goes last in order to change it. It would also create a bit of chaos, because the one party would move the convention later, the other one might follow and continue and continue until it reached a point where it was no longer an advantage to the party to go last, particularly in a year where the challenging party wasn't as well known and needed to get out there a little bit before the election. Thank you for listening. Uh, the website, MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com for comments. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.